Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet Buckley. is on the phone. Here we go. It is Monday, October 4th, 2021, people. Hope everyone had a great weekend, but I already know the answer. Uh, Unbelievable Saturday in college football. And let me just warn you, this could be one of those episodes where I talk for like an hour and a half straight. Because there's some Saturdays, I think last week I struggled to kind of find that main topic or those two, three bullet point topics that I had to talk about. Today, though, is not one of those days. We are going to open with what I believe is the biggest story in college football. Alabama and Georgia separating themselves from the rest of the sport after a dominant Saturday in college football. From there, we'll stop, take a break, talk Cincinnati, who all of a sudden, I think Cincinnati has a very linear path to the playoff. We'll talk about not only Cincinnati's win at Notre Dame, but what Oregon's loss means for Cincinnati, what it means for the Pac-12, Oklahoma, where do they fit in the mix. Then we'll take another break. We'll come back and talk about the other big topics from the day. I got to hit on those Kentucky Wildcats uh, who took care of Florida first time since 86 that they won in uh, Lexington against Florida. We'll talk a little bit about LSU and Coach O. We'll talk a little bit about Michigan and Jim Harbaugh, who all of a sudden is 5-0. and It does not look that bad. We'll see if that means that they're actually good enough to beat the teams that they need to beat, but it's a good day to be a Michigan Wolverine. With that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And as I said, like, like there's so much to talk about today. Again, Cincinnati, uh, Notre Dame, Kentucky, LSU, whatever. But to me, there is one singular topic in college football that is bigger than everything else and a topic that we learned about on Saturday, and that is this. Right now, it is Alabama, it is Georgia, and it is a major gap between them and everybody else. No disrespect to Cincinnati, no disrespect to Penn State, no disrespect to Iowa, no disrespect to Ohio State, Oklahoma, whoever. But I said coming into this week, last Wednesday's show, I said, this is show me something Saturday, okay? And I assumed that when I wanted somebody, I, when they, I wanted you to show me something, I assumed that it would be Arkansas and Ole Miss going on the road against these top two teams. Instead, it was the opposite. Alabama and Georgia showed me something, and that is that they are definitively the two best teams in the sport. Don't think I'm breaking news, but I do want to break down those games and what it means for the bigger picture of college football. 
Let's start with Alabama, number one in the country. To the victors go the spoils, reigning national champions. And I'll be honest, coming into this weekend, I actually thought that I, I thought there was a legitimate chance that Ole Miss could beat Alabama. I really wasn't sold that Georgia would lose to Arkansas. I thought it would be closer than it was. But I thought Ole Miss, with Lane Kiffin, with this high-powered offense, could go into Bryant-Denny Stadium and potentially pull off the upset, okay? Not saying it could happen, not saying it would happen, but I thought that there was a reason or a logic or a path in which that happened. And in my defense, I think it makes sense. Never forget, this Ole Miss team put up 48 points and over 500 yards of total offense on Alabama last year. On top of that, this year, they had scored at least 27 points in the first half of every single game that they played. They scored at least 42 points in every single game that they played. Um, and in many games, they called off the dogs in the middle of the third quarter, middle of the fourth quarter. I was on air on Fox Sports Radio during the Tulane game. They had 61 points on Tulane going into the fourth quarter, and Lane Kiffin basically called off the dogs. And so I thought this game could be close. I thought this game could be competitive. And instead, the story is really two things. The story is both Lane Kiffin and the story is Alabama's defense. And, and it would be unfair and unjust, and I know we have Bama fans that listen, you'll be mad that I'm talking about Lane Kiffin, but part of the reason that we saw what we saw on Saturday uh, was because of Lane Kiffin. And it's a shame. Like I said, I thought Ole Miss could really compete with Alabama. We will never know because Lane Kiffin did his team absolutely no favors at all. We all watched the game. We all saw the game. I suspect when the ratings come out, it is going to be a monster TV rating. And Ole Miss, early on, Lane Kiffin coached himself right out of the game. Ole Miss had three fourth down attempts in the first half, two of them in their own territory. They go 0 for 3 on fourth down. Lane Kiffin will justify it by saying it's analytics this. It's the, it was Lane Kiffin believing in Lane Kiffin in a way that he shouldn't have. And we're going to talk about Lane Kiffin more in a minute. I don't want to spend too much time on Lane Kiffin specifically. But to Alabama's credit, they stuff all three of them. They score on those three drives. They, they score immediately following the fourth down stops. And then from there, it's 28-0 and the game is over. But while part of it is easy to blame Lane Kiffin, and I think justifiable for the way, I think it's totally justifiable to blame Lane Kiffin, we also have to give Alabama's defense credit because this was a because to get to those fourth downs, you had to put them in bad situations, and then you still had to get the stops, which is what Alabama did. And so when I look back on Saturday, one of the most impressive things to me, look, there were some things coming into Saturday that we already knew, we already knew, right? Alabama's offense is great. Georgia's defense is great. Cincinnati is tough. Uh, Penn State is tough. This team's overrated. LSU can't run the ball. There were a lot of things that we knew coming into this weekend. We did not know how good this Alabama defense was, and that was my single biggest question coming into this game and the single biggest reason why I thought Alabama could actually lose this game. Remember, this was a team that against Florida just two weeks ago, just two weeks ago, gave up almost six yards per rush, and on top of that, gave up, you know, basically almost 30 points 
I don't want to say it was unanswered, but really you go back and look at that game, they could not get stops against Florida late, and they basically were lucky to outlast them in a game where they gave up over 400, uh, 440 yards of total offense and 245 yards rushing. And so I came into this game knowing how good Alabama's offense was, but again, major questions about this defense. Gave up almost six yards per carry against Florida, 245 yards rushing, and I just said, if Florida could do that, what could Ole Miss do? Instead, Alabama's defense steps up, and to me, for the first time, it looked like they had a complete football team and a defense that is capable of complementing the offense and competing for a national championship. The only other big takeaway from Alabama yesterday, and by the way, maybe it's just that Ole Miss isn't that good. I don't want to say that because I don't believe it, but part of it was also, and I think this was really important, they reestablished the run game as well. And so you look at this game, you look at the fact that Alabama, 450 yards of total offense, 241 yards 241 yards passing, but 210 yards on the ground, almost four and a half yards per carry. There were two things coming into this game that we were not positive about with Alabama. Could they stop the run? And could they run the football? And they did both. I thought that was by far their best effort. And to me, the effort that I needed to see to believe that, yes, Alabama is at the upper, upper, upper level of this sport. Furthermore, let's switch gears and let's talk Georgia because I just praised Alabama's defense I don't even know what to say about Georgia's defense at this point, okay? We are out of superlatives to talk about Georgia's defense as they absolutely destroyed Arkansas in this game. Final score of this game was 37-0. And listen, we got Arkansas fans that listen to this show. I'm sorry. We all knew the game was basically over middle of the first quarter. Georgia drives the length of the field twice. They block a punt. It's 21-0. And what's crazy about this game I don't want to sit there and say that Georgia could have picked their number, but Georgia called off the dogs pretty early. I think part of that was Arkansas's head coach, Sam Pittman, had previously worked under Kirby Smart. I don't think Kirby Smart wanted to embarrass him or show him up in any way, shape, or form, but I just bring it up to very simply say that if Georgia wanted to win this game 50 to nothing, I think they could have won it 50 to nothing. They wanted to win it 60 to nothing. I think there's a possibility they could have won it 60 to nothing. And that, again, is the crazy part. They called off the dogs early. They only had 11 pass attempts in this game. They basically got up and just ran the ball straight at Arkansas uh, until the clock ran out. That's what you do against Louisiana Monroe in week one, not what you do against the top 10 SEC opponent. Only that is exactly what Georgia did. Now, part of this in Arkansas fans, you're, you're going to say this and you're right. Arkansas didn't play its best game either, and it's not a knock on Arkansas, but the reality remains that they had 13 penalties over 100 yards of penalty yardage, and part of it was they couldn't get out of their own way. I'm not making excuses. I'm not saying I feel bad for them. I do think this was, as I said, coming into this game, a body blow game. We can say Texas A&M stinks because they do. But one thing Texas A&M is, is very physical, and I think Arkansas was a little bit worn down coming out of that Texas A&M game, big emotional win in Dallas, you get home, you spend a week celebrating, now you got to go on the road and play one of the best teams in the country at their place, crowd was great, Kirby Smart talked about it, and oh by the way, we're going to get into it in a minute, a potentially historic defense. Well, that's what Arkansas had to deal with this week, um, and, and so when I look at this game, 
I don't know that it says to me that much different than what I thought about Arkansas. Arkansas is a physical team. They're going to run the ball. They're going to stop the run. They just ran into a team that does everything that they do, only at a significantly better clip. I tweeted about it on Sunday or on Saturday during the game. I said, look, this isn't about Arkansas being bad. People are going to try to turn this into Arkansas being overrated. They stink. No, it's just that Georgia is that good. And so let's continue the conversation on Georgia because what they are doing defensively is historic, okay? I haven't had enough time to look into the stats and what it all means defensively, history-wise, but here's what you need to know. If, if you take anything out of today's podcast, it's this. There's a lot of things to take out of it, but Georgia's defense, I believe, is by far the best unit in college football. Like I said, Alabama can score, Ole Miss can score, uh, other teams, Iowa State play good defense. Georgia's defense is the best unit in college football, bar none. When I give you the stats, they're going to blow you away. First of all, Georgia, number one in total defense. What does that mean? I think you all know, but fewest yards allowed per game. Georgia currently allowing 180 yards per game. That is 50 yards fewer than any team in college football right now. So you take the other 129 teams, and then you take Georgia. Every team beyond Georgia is giving up at least 50 more yards per game than Georgia is right now. They're giving up 180. The next closest is Iowa State that's giving up 232 yards per game. And it's not like you can't say Georgia hasn't played anybody. They played Clemson. They played four Power 5 teams. South Carolina, I believe, is competitive, even though they didn't win. Um, uh, you know, Arkansas was a top 10 team coming in. So yes, you can argue that Clemson's a little bit this and Arkansas was maybe that. But what Georgia is doing is historic. Let me continue the conversation. On top of the 180 yards per game that they are allowing, they are allowing 4.6 points per game. 4.6. So you take all their games, you add up all the points they've given up, they are giving up 4.6 points per game. Less than five points per game. Take two field goals, subtract a point and a half, that is how much Georgia is giving up per game. Not per half, not per quarter, Per game, Georgia is giving up 4.6 points per game. Again, I cannot express to you how incredible that number is and how tough this defense is. They also lead the country in fewest yards per play allowed. And I could go on and on, but let me just give you the one stat that I think encapsulates what Georgia is doing right now. Keep in mind, like I said, they have not played a bunch of cream puffs. They have not played the Louisiana Monroes and they, of the Five games that they've played in one. Four have come against Power 5 teams. Now, you could argue some of them not quite as good as they have been in the years past. Clemson, South Carolina, for sure. But Arkansas is a top 10 team. Clemson's probably, as much as I make fun of them, probably a top 30, top 40 team. But the reason I bring it up is this. In four games against Power 5 competition, this is how many touchdowns Georgia has given up. They've played four Power 5 teams. Clemson, Vanderbilt, South Carolina, Arkansas. They have given up one touchdown, one touchdown total in four games against Power 5 teams that came in the fourth quarter against South Carolina when they were already up by 34 points. So we are looking at a potentially historic defense, 
And I'll just tell you, you know, you look at the rest of the schedule, it's hard to find the team that's going to be able to move the ball on them. They play Auburn this week. Uh, we all know Bo Nix. We all know what his deal is. Kentucky is obviously playing really well. We'll get to them later. Florida maybe a little bit. But I just don't see the team that is moving this ball, the ball on them potentially until the SEC championship game against Alabama. Speaking of which, let's get into it. Let's talk about it. Um, because the big conversation now, it is a big gap between Alabama and Georgia and everybody else. And I think every, the question everybody wants to know, who do you think is number one, Taurus? Is it Alabama or is it Georgia? I will tell you, I will give the slightest of edges to Alabama for this reason. It's not because they're number one in the country. It's not because I picked them to win the national championship. Because everyone knows, you know who I picked to win the championship. I picked them dogs. How about my dogs? I love the dogs. And I like. I believe if you put them on a neutral like like... like I could see the scenario Georgia wins. I could see the scenario Alabama wins. The one reason I would give Alabama the edge over Georgia right now, and again, the show is today, October 4th. I got to record when I got to record, okay? The reason I would give Alabama the edge is this. Alabama has shown to me at this point they are a complete football team. They can throw the ball with Bryce Young. They ran the ball really well yesterday. They can stop the run. Finally, we saw that against a good run offense in Ole Miss, and they can obviously stop the pass. They're a complete team in every way. They finally have a kicker, blah, blah, blah. My only concern with Georgia, and this is like picking nits here. It's like, you know, arguing Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes. If you got to take one, who would it be? It doesn't mean the other one stinks. And so my only concern with Georgia is this. Historic defense, great run game. We have not really seen their ability to pass the ball yet. They rank currently in terms of all of college football. They have the 60th ranked passing attack, but in their defense, they attempt 100. Uh, uh, they rank 104th in pass attempts on the season. And so, yes. By the way, I picked Georgia to win the national championship, but I am just telling you that would be my only concern. One, JT Daniels seems to get banged up every single week. He seems to always be hurt. They are obviously a different offense when he's in. I just don't know when he's going to be able to play. So you, you, you're playing backup quarterbacks, which again, by the way, makes the Arkansas thing that much more incredible. And then on top of that, um, you know, can, can your starting quarterback stay healthy and can you make plays if you have to through the air? Now, the big question is, is are they going to play a team that they have to make plays through the air against? And the answer might be no. The only team that might actually be able to stop the run against Georgia uh, and make them score points and make them pass the ball might be Alabama. And we might not see them until the SEC championship game, let alone the playoff. Really quick, a couple other notes on this game. First of all, I just mentioned the SEC championship game in the playoff, and I had this tweet, and I put it out. And some of you agreed and some of you disagreed, but, but I was thinking about Alabama and Georgia, and you guys know how I feel about the college football playoff. I have never been in favor of expansion, but really over the last year or so, I've kind of realized, you know what, maybe it'll be good, it'll get some new teams involved, it'll allow some other portions of the country, whatever. Why do I bring it up? It is because this year, th this situation with Georgia, Alabama and Georgia significantly better than everybody else. I think what it does for me is kind of prove that really at the end of the day, four is the right number for the college football playoff. If they expand, I'm not going to be mad. To be clear, I'm not going to be yelling and screaming and complaining on the Aaron Torres podcast. But what I am saying is when you look at this Alabama-Georgia situation, it says to me four is probably the right number. Because if you only have two teams in the playoff, you know what happens. Alabama-Georgia becomes the de facto national championship game. And then from there, 
those two teams have to play somebody else for the national championship when you know that the real national championship game was the SEC title game. It has happened before, 2012. Alabama played Georgia in the national championship game. This was before the 14 playoff. Alabama beats Georgia. They then go on to destroy Notre Dame. And we all knew when we were watching that game, Alabama and Georgia are the two best teams in the country. That year, by the way, Johnny Manziel was at Texas A&M, and Texas A&M might have been the third best team in the country by the end of the year. So I think two is not enough. But I also think 12. Like, So we're going to go to 12 just to put, I don't know, um, Michigan or BYU into a playoff and just give Georgia and Alabama an extra game before they have to ultimately play each other in the national championship game. And so I guess my point is this. In my life, there have been years in college football where there is one great team in college football. There have been years where there are two great teams in college football. I think there's even been years where there's been three great teams in college football. Two years ago, for example, LSU, Clemson, Ohio State were all elite, okay? And so I bring it up for this reason. There's never been a time in my life where there are five great teams. There are five teams that are good enough to win a national championship or seven or 10 or 12. That doesn't exist. That season has never happened and it never will. There aren't enough good players, good coaches to go around. And so if we want to expand the playoff just to get other teams in and make it more interesting during the regular season, we know how uh, you know the regular season gets by the end of the year, that's fine. But this is year is a perfect example. Four is probably the right number because if we only had two, Alabama and Georgia wouldn't get in. And of course, from there, um, you know, if we go to 12, those teams are just going to have to play an extra game to face each other again. Really quickly, uh, I don't really have much else on Arkansas. I mean, look, I said, I thought they were going to struggle to move the ball against Georgia. I didn't think it was going to be 37 nothing. I don't really know what else there is to say there. Ole Miss and Lane Kiffin, I'll just say this. What Ole Miss and Lane Kiffin reminded me of on Saturday was, and I'm going to use, I'm going to do the sports radio guy dating analogy. You ever have a boyfriend or girlfriend where you date him, you date him, you date him. It's good, it's good, it's good. And then ultimately you get to a point and you break up. And you break up and there's a very specific reason why you break up. It could be uh, career goals. It could be uh, one wants kids and one doesn't. It could be whatever. But there's a reason you break up. And then two, three, four years later, you kind of see him and you kind of remember uh, you you kind of see him, and you get all excited. Oh, we should catch up. And then you go out for a few drinks, and then you're going out for coffee, and then you're hanging out again, and you think, oh, this person's great. I miss them. And then like a month later, whatever pushed you away the first time comes up again. To me, that was Lane Kiffin on Saturday because the, three for, the 0 for 3 on first down in the first half, which basically ended the game for his team, that to me was why Lane Kiffin is in the position that he's in, which was fired by USC, fired by the Oakland Raiders at Ole Miss. It is because Lane Kiffin, he can't help himself sometimes, right? We, we saw Lane Kiffin's true colors on Saturday. He is who he is. He is a guy that he is a schematic genius, but he cannot get out of his own way sometimes. He does stupid stuff. He says stupid stuff. Um, he makes bad decisions at the worst possible time, but he just can't help himself. It's not his fault. It's just who he is. It is in his DNA. Um, and we saw it dating back to the USC days where he made these idiotic coaching decisions. And you're like, bro, what are you doing? Just do this. Just punt the ball. Um, you know, we've seen it off the field where we know he shouldn't do this or say this or whatever. And he does it anyway. And then we saw it Saturday with Ole Miss is that, you know, we, 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 we spent the last couple weeks talking so much about Lane Kiffin 
And it's interesting because, you know, his star has now risen so much that I think a lot of people in college football circles are like, this guy, he's going to get another one of these big boy jobs here in the coming weeks, months, or years. My buddy Ryan Fowler, who hosts in Tuscaloosa, uh, told me, he said, I hope that Lane Kiffin is the next head coach at Alabama after Nick Saban leaves. Uh, LSU fans want Lane Kiffin. USC fans want Lane Kiffin back. But what we saw Saturday is that Lane Kiffin ultimately cannot help himself. When, it's, when push comes to shove, when it's all on the line, sometimes he's going to make dumb decisions and it's going to work out, and sometimes he's going to make dumb decisions and it won't. But ultimately what is going to happen is that he is going to make decisions that are not logical. And that is what happened on Saturday with the 0 for 3 on, on fourth downs. And that is ultimately who he is. I also, you know, he did a, an interview at halftime with Jamie Erdahl of CBS, not her fault, but he got upset through the headset. You know, he, he threw the headset down. He answered one question through the headset down. Um, listen, I like the guy. I think he's great for college football, but he is who he is. A tiger can't change his stripes. And, you know, we just kind of saw who the guy is on Saturday, a guy that cannot help himself. And sometimes it's to the detriment of his own team. All right. How about that for a little 25-minute intro segment? What I want to do now, as I always do, take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to talk Cincinnati winning at Notre Dame and why all of a sudden that Cincinnati playoff picture is becoming a lot clearer. We'll be right back. All right, everybody. I am back. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. And I do want to switch gears because I do believe that outside of Alabama, Georgia, there was one other really big story that I do believe in terms of college football as a whole is a really important topic. And that topic is America's team, the Cincinnati Bearcats, who went to Notre Dame and took care of the Fighting Irish. Final score, 24-13. to Cincinnati beats Notre Dame. But what's interesting about this game is that it's sometimes what I talk about on this show. It's not always just a topic. It's not always just a story, but it is the story behind the story, which is so important, okay? And if it was just about Cincinnati going to Notre Dame and celebrating on the field and cheering and yelling and screaming, if that was the case, I wouldn't be talking about it. If I thought it was a nice win, but it doesn't mean anything, I'd talk about it, but I wouldn't be doing a whole segment on it. But why it is important is this. Cincinnati going to Notre Dame in conjunction with everything else that happened in college football yesterday, including Oregon losing to Stanford, maybe most importantly. I'm just telling you right now, Cincinnati, if it runs the table, is going to have a very impressive resume and very much should be in the conversation for the college football playoff. Didn't think it was going to happen in terms of the college football playoff conversation, but we are here. Cincinnati had a perfect storm on Saturday, and I'm telling you, they absolutely belong to be in the conversation as they are now in the top five of the AP poll. Let's get to the game itself. First of all, shout out Cincinnati fans. Incredible turnout from Cincinnati fans. I was watching the game. I have no idea what the final tally of Cincinnati fans in the stadium was. It was a lot, though. If you turn on that game at all, the number, the amount of red that was all across that stadium was absolutely incredible. So shout out to Cincinnati fans for showing up, and it's with good reason. It was a huge game. They have a potentially historically great team. They're playing in an iconic venue in a game that mattered so much for their season, and Cincinnati fans showed up and, and you know really showed out for the team themselves. Speaking of which, I'll say this. 
Um, even coming into the game, it was really interesting because last week I spent so much time gushing about Brian Kelly and gushing about Notre Dame, and it, it was for good reason, right? But I also, even after I did last week's show, I said, man, they got Cincinnati this week off a of bye. I love Brian Kelly, but that is a tough game to have off the emotional win over Wisconsin. And when I saw that Notre Dame was a slight underdog coming into this game at home, I said, oh boy, even Vegas knows how good Cincinnati is and how much trouble Notre Dame might be in. And that is exactly what we saw Saturday. In terms of the game itself, what surprised me the most, I guess what I would say, is how unfazed by the moment that Cincinnati was in this game. That is a testament to Luke Fickle. That is a testament to the program that he has built. It is a testament to the confidence that they have. Because I'm not saying they're Alabama. I'm not saying they're Ohio State. I'm not saying they're whoever in terms of talent. But they walked into that stadium with the exact same poise of one of those programs. Not, that not only is happy to be there, but understands what's at stake and is ready to play and is going to play their absolute best. And that's exactly what we got out of Cincinnati. When I look back at that game, what stands out to me the most, there was nothing weird about it. Cincinnati got up to a 17-point lead in the beginning of the uh, uh, at the in the second quarter. They're up 17 nothing going into halftime. 17-7 after the third quarter, and even after Notre Dame cut the lead to 17-13 early in the fourth, Cincinnati marches right down the field, scores a touchdown. Desmond Ritter runs in, and he he points out to the crowd. And so you just talk about a program that was in the moment, unfazed. I was so impressed by this team and the poise that they took on the road. And again, it is a testament to Luke Fickle. And I'll take it a step further. The other thing that stood out to me, I think we all understand this isn't an elite Notre Dame team. But this is a Notre Dame program that basically last just, just a year ago went to the college football playoff. This is a Notre Dame team that puts seven, eight, nine, 10, 12, 15 guys in the NFL in any given year. Maybe not 15, but you get the point. Seven, eight guys in the NFL in any given year. They have top 10 recruiting classes consistently. And if you watch the game, the size, the speed, the athleticism, the toughness, the poise, the mistakes, Cincinnati was just as good as them. There was nothing fluky about this one at all. It had nothing to do with turnovers or bad refs calls or whatever. The crazy part was I think you could argue Cincinnati didn't even play its best game because they had two turnovers in the game, and at times they didn't even play their best football. And so why this win is important is not just because, again, Cincinnati wins and it's a great win and we celebrate on the field and we do this and we do that. It's important because now they have that signature win that they so desperately need to go to the college football playoff committee later in the year. If you go back to last year, remember, Cincinnati was undefeated all year long, but because there was essentially no out-of-conference games, Cincinnati didn't have a chance to prove that it was capable of beating Power 5 teams on the road in their place and that they were of, ca of Power 5 caliber. Um, you know, they, they finished the regular season 9-0, and but they could never leapfrog Ohio State. They could never leapfrog, I, I, ironically, Notre Dame. And they go to the Peach Bowl and they play really well against Georgia, but they never even got that opportunity. Well, now they've already beaten Indiana, and Indiana might not even be good. But that win against Notre Dame is going to resonate because even if Notre Dame isn't a great team this year, I think Notre Dame's like a 10-2 and two kind of team and a team that this is going to be a top five, top 10 win throughout the season. 
and you start matching up their playoff resumes with everybody else, I don't think anybody else is going to have a win at the top of their resume as impressive as Cincinnati going to Notre Dame. Now, some teams might, but those might be a team that has one, two, three, four losses, and you start looking at who Cincinnati is going to have to compete with for a college football playoff, everything's coming up Luke Fickle, baby, because just think about it. First of all, Cincinnati, let's just start with, with the ACC. Let's even backtrack. We all agree Alabama, Georgia are awesome. I don't see the scenario that both of those teams are not in the playoff. One, because the other conferences are struggling. Two, because those teams are so dominant. I don't see either of those teams losing before the SEC championship game, and then the winner is going to get in, and then the loser is going to get in as well. Beyond that, though, let's just start looking at the rest of college football. The ACC is a dumpster fire, okay? The ACC is terrible. Clemson finally dropped out of the top 25. It took two weeks too long, but they finally fall out of the top 25, and in the new AP Top 25, here's who's ranked out of the ACC. Wake Forest and NC State. Wake Forest is the only undefeated team left in the ACC. And I'm just telling you, it doesn't matter how this season shakes out. No one in the ACC that wins the ACC is going to have a more impressive win than Cincinnati going to Notre Dame to get a W. It's just not going to happen. Just, It's not going to happen. And by the way, the teams that we thought were good, Clemson's 2-2 two and two already. Uh, North Carolina is 3-2. and two. Miami is awful. So I just look at the totality of the ACC. Those elite teams, they don't exist. And even if they did, nobody is going to have a win better than what Cincinnati did on Saturday. You take it a step further, the Big 12, it's the same deal. Oklahoma stinks. Like, I don't know how to break it to you. Oklahoma is not good. They finally showed a little sign of life on Saturday. But you look at Oklahoma right now. Oklahoma took care of K-State at K-State. I do give them credit. But at the same time, they have now played five games, four against uh, FBS opponents. So they play one FCS team, four against FCS FBS opponents. All four were one possession games. They beat Tulane by five. They beat Nebraska by seven. They beat West Virginia by three. They beat Kansas State by six. I'm just telling you, you play that many close games, eventually you're going to get tripped up. I think it could be as early as Texas this week, but I don't see anyone from the Big 12 going undefeated. Big 10, I do think we're going to get a really worthy conference champion out of there, but then the Pac-12, like Oregon lost. We're officially out of teams in the Pac-12 that are undefeated, and I don't buy this narrative that Oregon can't play their way back into the playoff conversation. I think if they go 12-1, and win the Pac-12, it's worth noting on Saturday, their offensive coordinator, Joe Moorhead, was not in the building. I assume it's COVID-related, but I bring it up because I think if they go 12-1, and win the Pac-12 with a win at Ohio State, they're still very much in the college football playoff conversation. But again, if they're 12-1 and with a loss at a bad Stanford team and Cincinnati's undefeated and their best win is at Notre Dame, I think the edge goes to Cincinnati, and that's assuming Oregon runs the table. And so, again, I don't want to belabor the point. There's a lot of football left to be played, and I will say Cincinnati does not have an incredible schedule going forward. Now, the good news for them, SMU just became ranked this week in the poll. They're ranked number 24, so there's at least one more ranked team on the schedule. But when you start to look at who Cincinnati is going to play, they will be heavily favored in every game. They beat SMU, two wins over top 25 teams. They will have that dominant win at Notre Dame. And I am just telling you, I'm just telling you, you can like it, you cannot like it, you can say it's unfair, you can say it's this, you can say it's that. One, they look the part to me. I believe Cincinnati is one of the five best teams in college football that I've seen this year. Two, I'm just telling you, they now have the win that they need to go to the big boy table and say, give us our shot. 
it came at Notre Dame on Saturday. And I think I think Cincinnati is a really, really interesting team going forward. The other team, by the way, uh, is BYU. BYU has a bunch of Power 5 teams left on their schedule. BYU also 5-0. and So if you're a Cincinnati fan, this is what you want. You need BYU to lose at least once. And then you're just hoping for carnage in the ACC, Big 12, and Pac-12. The good news is the carnage already happened in the ACC and the, and the Pac-12. Now you just got to hope Oklahoma loses a few games. All right, want to take one more break. Then I want to come back. I want, to, I want to talk two marquee SEC storylines, Kentucky beating Florida, LSU losing to Auburn. Then we'll talk Michigan, who all of a sudden is awesome. And we will probably get out of here with a little bit of talk on our boy, Urban Meyer. All right, everybody. I am back. Final time today. A lot to get into, so let's break it down. Let's waste no more time. I want to get into it. So much to discuss, and, and I want to start uh, with the University of Kentucky. We'll get to some other stuff in a minute. Harbaugh's awesome all of a sudden again. His old buddy, Urban Meyer. Oh, my goodness, Urban Meyer. You got some splaining to do, and I think we might get some explanation by the time you guys actually listen to this podcast on Monday, but let's start and also Coach O. We'll talk about Coach O. So all sorts of coaching stuff here, but let's start with Kentucky. Uh, because Kentucky was a team, I think, coming into this this weekend, I, I didn't talk a ton about them on the podcast because I don't think we really knew that much about them. They were 4-0 and coming in, but the teams that they beat, it's not exactly though they went through uh, Alabama and Georgia to get to 4-0. They beat Louisiana Monroe, they beat Missouri, they beat Tennessee Chattanooga, and they beat South Carolina. Um, and even in the, the, the two SEC games, I mean, Missouri, they got a big lead and then they, they had to hold on. South Carolina, a bunch of turnovers. So that is not a criticism of them. I did believe Kentucky should be in the top 25 coming into this season, but it wasn't as though we really knew all that much about the Wildcats coming into this, this weekend. But the one thing I could tell you, we were going to learn really, really, really quick because they were playing a really, really good Florida team at Kroger Field in Lexington. And how about those Wildcats who took care of business? Final score, 20 to 13. First win over Florida in Lexington since 1986. That's right. Most of you weren't even born. Many of you weren't even born for many, many, many years. I was alive as a little baby crawling around doing baby stuff. But it has been a long time. And so let's talk about it. I should mention, by the way, I should mention before we get into the game, we have started the team-specific Kentucky page Torres on UK. If you are a Kentucky fan, you're going to want to follow that for all of my Kentucky coverage. But let's get into this game because this game was really, really, really fun. And I think it speaks a lot to the program that Mark Stoops has built there in Lexington. So in terms of the game itself, listen, a uh, quick start to the game. Florida scored on its second drive. Wandale Robinson had this unbelievable touchdown run where he broke about seven different tackles. It's 7-7 early. And then from there, it was kind of an old-school SEC knock-em-down, drag-em-out fight. Uh, the big play was obviously Josh Paschal blocked, uh, blocked whatever it was, blocked field goal, returned for a touchdown, puts Kentucky up 13-10 to in that moment. And Kentucky, to their credit, never gave up the lead. Now, it got really hairy at the end. It got a little nerve-wracking if you were a Kentucky fan. Uh, Florida scored a field goal late and then drove again later the length of the field. You needed a goal line stand, but Kentucky comes out with the victory. As I said, first win over Florida since 1986. 
fans stormed the field. And overall, I just thought it was a really, really, really good performance for Kentucky. Specifically, I thought the defense stepped up. I thought the defense did what it had to do. I talked a moment ago about how good Florida's run game was, especially against Alabama, but really they came into this game as the top-ranked rushing offense in college football. They were moving the ball on everybody, basically at will, even against a, a Tennessee team that all of a sudden is showing signs of life. They had over 500 yards of total offense last week, almost 300 yards rushing. And I thought Kentucky did a phenomenal job of clogging those running game, running lanes, shutting things down, and finding a way to get a win. And I think if you're a Kentucky fan, you feel great, not only because you get the dub, not only because you're 5-0, and but because you didn't even play your best game, especially offensively, but the defense did what it needed to do to beat a top-10 Florida team. But that's not really why I want to talk. I mean, I want to talk about this game because all of a sudden Kentucky just, the, the sky is the limit on what this season can be. But I want to talk about them because I think that all of us in the media, myself included, we don't do a good enough job of spotlighting teams like Kentucky. And let me explain. So I want to backtrack because in my job, what I do, uh, and in most people's job in the media, you got to hit the big stories, right? You got to hit Alabama, you got to hit Ohio State. You got to hit the college football playoff. You got to hit the Heisman. You got to hit the coaching carousel. But sometimes there are stories just as good, just below the surface, and we need to address those. And I think Mark Stoops in Kentucky is one of them because I've talked about this a lot in college football, but I think you can argue what Mark Stoops is doing at Kentucky is as impressive as just about what anybody anywhere in college football is doing. Let me give you an abstract example, but let me explain. When the USC job came open about three weeks ago, whatever it was, four weeks ago, I started going through all the candidates. I started kind of talking to you guys through it. And I brought up P.J. Fleck. And I know P.J. Fleck at Minnesota. He's a little bit of a lightning rod, row the boat, kind of a, uh, you know, a quirky guy, whatever. But what I said was this. P.J. Fleck won 11 games at Minnesota two years ago. It had not been done in over 100 years at Minnesota. And so you start talking about what is actually harder, winning 11 games at Minnesota or winning a national championship at USC? It's harder to win 11 games at Minnesota than it is to win a national championship at USC. And that's why I think when people make fun of the guy and say, oh, he would never last at a place like USC, it's like, if you can win 11 games at Minnesota, you can win a lot of games at USC. And so I bring it up and I bring it back to Mark Stoops to say this. We spend so much time talking only about Alabama, only about Georgia, only about this team in the playoff picture. We have to give Mark Stoops credit for what he's done at Kentucky. I don't know if he's ever going to win a national championship there, but Kentucky, and this is no disrespect, we have lots of Kentucky fans that listen to this show. Kentucky has no, there's no reason Kentucky should even be in the national championship conversation. And the fact that Mark Stoops has gotten this program to the level that he has gotten it at, I think it is one of the best stories that nobody in college football talks about. Because the bottom line is this, look, you can take a non-traditional program and you can win a lot a program that hasn't had a ton of success outside of the the traditional Ohio State, Michigan, Notre Dame, Alabama structure and you can you can go a lot of places and win, right? But usually it's because of who you are, what conference you're in and what kind of weird circumstances pop up. Um, you know, Baylor and TCU have won Big 12 regular season titles. But one, it's because it's the Big 12 and it kind of stinks. Two, 
it's because it's usually at a time when Oklahoma and Texas are both down or at least one is down. Same thing in the ACC. In our lifetimes, Wake Forest has won an ACC regular season championship. Not because Wake Forest is an elite program, but because the ACC really stunk in that given year. Clemson hadn't arrived yet. Florida State was down, whatever. There are no down years in the SEC, which is what makes Mark Stoops, what he has done is so crazy. Because in any given year, you look at the SEC, and yeah, Georgia might be down. But guess what? Florida's going to be up. Or Florida might be down, but Georgia and Alabama, like this year, are both national championship contenders. And Florida fans, I'm not saying your team is down. I'm just using it as a hypothetical. There is never a year where there are just not three or four bloodbath games on your schedule. And Mark Stoops has been able to navigate it all and figure out a way to build a consistent winner at a program that has never been a consistent winner basically in any of our lifetimes, you know, period, period. And you go back three, four, five years. First of all, we're talking about a program that, and I understand there's a million bowl games now and the, the, the paradigm has changed and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you look at this program. This program has now gone to a bowl game every single year since 2016. So I'm doing this off the top of my head. Not great at math, but 16, 17, 18, 19, five straight bowl games. They're definitely going to get to six. And how about this first step? They had, one, they had had one 10-win season in the previous 60 years since Mark Stoops got to Kentucky. Now, we don't know if they'll get there this year, but they had a 10-win season in 2018 with Benny Snell and Josh Allen and that whole team, and they're very likely, you look at the schedule, going to get to 10 wins this year because they don't have Alabama on the schedule. They don't have Arkansas, Ole Miss, who I think are the better teams in the SEC West. You look at the rest of the schedule, they got LSU this weekend who stinks, and we're going to talk about LSU in a minute. Um, and then from there, they got Georgia. But every other game on the schedule is winnable. And so you talk about a program that, that historically has had no business winning 8, 9, 10, 11 games. This could be the second 10-win season in four years. And so I look at what Mark Stoops has done. I think it's incredible. And I think we saw it on the field on Saturday, okay? And I, I just talked about it a minute ago with Cincinnati. But I think it's important to bring it up with Kentucky here as well. There are times where a team that traditionally does not normally beat a team does, and there are like weird explanations. You could have uh, uh, special teams, penalties, injuries, uh, uh, targeting call, whatever. But what stood out to me about that Kentucky win over Florida is how unsurprising it was about the fact that this is now the second time in four years that Florida has lost to Kentucky, that Kentucky has beaten Florida. Kentucky has basically been uh, competitive with every single team that it plays over the years, except for, except you know, essentially Alabama, who nobody beats. And, and, and Georgia, they've actually been more competitive with in recent years than I think a lot of people realize. And so think about that. Forget the 10-win seasons, this, and the bowl games, that. The fact that Kentucky stepped on the field against Florida, and they looked every bit the part. Not saying they were the dominant team for 60 minutes. Not saying they were unquestionably. But they looked like they belonged. And that is something that up until three or four years ago, we could never say about Kentucky. And not only did they look like they belonged on Saturday, they were the better team. When it came time for guys to make plays, they were the team with the dudes that made the plays. And so I don't know what the ceiling is. Um, but again, we spend so much time talking about, well, this team's going to make the playoff, and that team's on the outside looking in, and this team should be in the playoff, so we got to fire their coach. Well, how about we give a, a credit to a program like Kentucky, which historically has never been on a run like it is now, and it is because of Mark Stoops. We need to acknowledge and credit 
everything that guy has done as a Kentucky head coach. All right, let's start to wrap here. A couple other topics that I do want to get to. Um, and, you know, we'll get to some other stuff in a minute. We'll get to Jim Harbaugh, Michigan. We'll get to Urban Meyer. A lot to talk about with that guy. But I do want to stick in the SEC. And ironically, I do want to talk about the team that Kentucky is playing this coming weekend, and that is the LSU Tigers. Because it was not a good night for Ed Orgeron, and it was not a good night for LSU. And as a little bit of a backstory, listen, it, it has been a disappointing stretch for LSU since they won that national championship, right? Coming off the high of winning that 2019 national championship. But last year, you go 5-5, five and five, you lose the UCLA opener to start this season. And as I talked about on the show the day after, it was the question that everybody in college football was asking. How much did Coach O really have to do with that national championship? And how much of it was a historic season from Joe Burrow thanks to a historic play caller who is now an NFL offensive coordinator in Joe Brady? We were going to start to find out. And I will say, while last year was disappointing, and while the UCLA game was certainly disappointing, what LSU fans could not argue is it appeared as though the program was at least starting to stabilize itself. Don't think that they've played well over the last three weeks, but after that UCLA game, they rip off three straight wins um, in games that you frankly have to win if you're LSU. You play McNeese State, ironically, Ed Orgeron's son is the quarterback there. You take care of business. You crush Central Michigan, and you beat Mississippi State last week, and it wasn't a great win, but you get the win on the road. And you feel good going into this one for one simple reason. It is because no matter what has happened at LSU through history, the good, the bad, the pretty, the ugly, the one thing an LSU fan can set his or her watch to, LSU does not lose to Auburn at home. Coming into this weekend, LSU had not lost to Auburn at home since 1999. For some historical context, the last time LSU lost to Auburn at home was the year before LSU hired Nick Saban. Not Alabama, LSU. Before Nick Saban was at Miami Dolphin, before he was at Alabama, he was at LSU. The year before he got hired at LSU, that was the last time LSU lost to Auburn at home. And so you came into this one, if you're an LSU fan, feeling like, okay, we're good. We take care of business against Auburn this week. We see, what we're, we see where we're at. And then we hit the tough part of our schedule. But at least we're 4-1 going into the meat of our schedule. And what's crazy is, this was another game, a lot like Cincinnati that I talked about earlier, a lot like Georgia, Alabama, whatever. LSU basically controlled this game for the majority of the game. They were up, uh, they were up uh, excuse me, 13-10 going into halftime. They were up 19-10 going into the fourth quarter. And so it's not pretty, but you're sitting there saying, okay, we are up two scores on a team that we always take care of at home. Doesn't matter how, how sloppy it is, doesn't matter this, doesn't matter. We are going to win this game, we're going to be 4-1, and one, and in the coming weeks we're actually going to start to really find out how good they are. Instead, give up a bunch of scores, Bo Nix does some Bo Nix weird stuff, and you end up losing 24-19, and I will just tell you this, I don't root against anybody. I am not hoping for failures, but Ed Orgeron is now 8-7 and seven since the night all that confetti fell on Joe Burrow, Joe Brady, and Coach O in the Superdome to win the national championship in 2019. And while I don't root against anybody, I am also a realist, and I am just telling you his time is ticking at LSU. And I'll be honest, I don't see the scenario that he survives this year. And the reason he doesn't survive this year is because LSU, maybe more than any other like reasonably good team, they have a problem they can't figure out. 
You know how I said a few minutes ago that Georgia had the best the, the, Georgia's defense is the best unit in college football. You can argue about this. that Nothing in college football is better than Georgia's defense. I would argue at the Power 5 level, there is something LSU's run game. There is nothing worse at the Power 5 level than LSU's run game. Coming out of Saturday night, they now rank 128th nationally in the run game. And the only teams behind them are Mississippi State, which doesn't even try to run the ball running the air raid with Mike Leach, and Bowling Green. And so that has been their problem all year, and that was the reason that they lost on Saturday night to Auburn. Listen to these stats. It will blow you away. And remember, LSU is a program that under Les Miles, we complained, and I'm not blaming LSU fans on this because we in the media complain just as much. They run the ball too much. They don't air out the ball enough. All they do is run the ball. So the school that produced Leonard Fournette, the school that produced Clyde Edwards-Alaire, the school that produced Darius Geis, and I know he's in some legal trouble, but as a college running back, he was incredible. That school, this is what they did against Auburn on Saturday night. 11 yards rushing on 26 carries. Let me say that again for effect. 11 yards rushing against Auburn on 26 carries. That is unbelievable. That is inconceivable. And if you just want to, if you haven't watched LSU and you can't figure out what's wrong, is it this, is it that? The quarterback, Max Johnson, is fine. They got some great skill position guys. Keyshawn Boutte, great name, is an elite wide receiver. The defense is doing its job, but they cannot run the ball. And what's incredible is there's no one real specific reason why. Now, they've had injuries on the offensive line. Uh, you know, th- their starting left tackle is now at Kentucky, ironically. He'll play against his former team this weekend because he got suspended from uh, LSU. But there is no reason that LSU, the way they recruit, the guys that they have, should ever be this bad in one specific thing, only that is exactly where they are. They cannot run the football, and I'm telling you, and I know Auburn's had a really good run defense this year, and I have been impressed by Auburn under Brian Harson, kind of the maturity and the, the, the air of confidence that he's brought to that program. There's never a reason that LSU should run for 11 yards in 26 carries against anyone in the SEC, and I ultimately think it's going to be their downfall. Because if you look at the rest of the schedule, here's the scary part for LSU. The schedule was actually set up pretty nicely for you to get off to a really good start, and then in the middle of the year, you were going to figure out how good you were. You lose to UCLA on opening night. Well, as it turns out, UCLA's not that good. UCLA, since they beat LSU, is 1-2. and two. Beat Stanford, lost to Fresno, lost to Arizona State. Two losses at the Rose Bowl, by the way. UCLA, uh, what are they, 2-2 two and two this year at the Rose Bowl, if you include the Hawaii game. They beat LSU. They can't beat Fresno State at home. So we know that UCLA game isn't good. But, you know, the schedule was that that UCLA loss isn't good. But the schedule was set up for LSU to have success at UCLA, then McNeese, then Central Michigan, then at Mississippi State, which we thought might be the worst team in the division coming in. And then an Auburn team that you never lose to. This schedule was carbon made. I don't even know if that's a term, but it was made to be. 5-0 5-0 and going into the meteor schedule because Auburn you never lose to at home and so now that you have lost to Auburn you're 3-2 and you lost to two decent teams but far from elite teams and here's the scary part the schedule now gets tougher this weekend you go play at 5-0 and Kentucky good luck with that because Kentucky plays real defense we just talked about it a minute ago 
After that, you play Florida. After that, you play at Ole Miss. And Ole Miss, I have some questions about him. We talked about Lane Kiffin earlier. That ain't going to be easy. Oh, and then you get a bye and you play at Alabama. Then you get Louisiana Monroe and you wrap with Texas A&M home. And I just, I look at that schedule. They're 3-2 and two right now. And again, as I said, they're 8-7 and seven overall since they won the national championship. Final eight games of the season, or seven games of the season. At Kentucky, Florida, Ole Miss, at, at, at Ole Miss, at Alabama, Arkansas. I didn't even mention Arkansas. How many of those games are you going to win? Like, yeah, you might win against Louisiana Monroe. You might beat Texas A&M because they stink on the last night of the season. But is Coach O even going to get to that point? You got at Kentucky, Florida, at Ole Miss, at Alabama. Three of the next four on the road. All three teams are ranked in the top 25 right now. And so when I look at Coach O, like I said, I do not root against anybody in this sport. And I certainly don't root against Coach O. I think he is great for the sport of college football. I love the fact that Coach O did what he did two years ago at LSU. For the record, I wish USC had kept him a few years back. But at a certain point, and I talked about this after the UCLA loss, one, the team stinks. Two, there is a very direct uh, line between you lose Joe Brady, you lose Joe Burrow, you lose Dave Aranda, and you were unable to replace them. And so was it really you, or was it all the guys that you brought in, and they were propping you up? And three, he's just out of excuses in terms of other variables as well. Last year, he blamed the staff. Well, he replaced both coordinators since then. Um, Last year, they had a young team. A lot of guys get drafted. Well, these are all guys you recruited. Last year, you had a few opt-outs. Well, there's no no opt-outs in 2021. And again, the schedule was set up for you to have success. And the scary team is you're losing to teams that LSU should never lose to. No disrespect to Mississippi State, but last year when Mississippi State in Mike Leach's debut put up a billion points on a billion yards, that's a game that you just say, LSU should never look like that against Mississippi State. No disrespect to UCLA. No disrespect to Chip Kelly. But LSU should not lose to UCLA. Not this UCLA team. Maybe in five years if, if Chip Kelly really has it rolling, this isn't a top 25 team in UCLA right now. Sorry, they're not. And you shouldn't lose to Auburn at home. And so, Coach O, I don't root against anybody. I hope he figures out a way to make it. LSU is College football is better when LSU is good, and college football is better when Coach O is there. But I hate to say it, he's starting to look like the guy that was the longtime coordinator that did not have success as the old Miss head coach. I just don't see how it works out. All right, let's wrap. Uh, one last kind of meaty topic, then we'll get to Urban Meyer. And boy, oh boy, will we get to Urban Meyer. Um, And that topic is the Michigan Wolverines. And I'm just going to ask you, is Michigan football actually good this year? Because we are now, like, like we now have a five-game sample size. We are now almost halfway through the season. And so I know how fans act, and you want to say, oh, they haven't played anybody, and this team stinks, and those guys suck, and I hate that team, and you guys always overrate that guy. We are now five weeks into the season, and you can't write off anything as a one-off, weird, bizarre deal. At this point, teams kind of are who they are, and you have to respect and appreciate what they've done in the case of a team like Michigan, who is 5-0. and And I'll just tell you, coming off that win against Wisconsin, I am finally starting to become a believer in this program. And it's interesting because if you listen to this show, you know that for the most part, I have always been a defender of Jim Harbaugh. 
Last year was a little bit weird because of COVID. Um, it was interesting last year, if you listen to this show, I basically turned it in, I, I called it Wolverine Talk with Torres at some point because I never stopped talking about Michigan. Every week was kind of a new low for this program. But for the most part, I have always defended Jim Harbaugh. I understand he was brought to Michigan to win national championships, compete for Big Ten titles, beat Ohio State. I understand he hasn't done any of it. And so if you want to criticize him and you want to say he stinks and he's terrible and get him out and fire him, whatever. What I will also tell you is two things can be true, as I always say. One, he has not delivered what we all thought he would deliver. And if you want to call him overrated, you want to say he stinks, that's fine. What I would also say is that if you take, just take out last year with COVID. If you take out last year, over his first five seasons, this is what he did. 10 and 3, 10 and 3, 8 and 5, 10 and 3, 9 and 4. That is an average of nine and a half wins over his first five seasons in the lead up to COVID last year. And so for all the criticism Jim Harbaugh gets, I've always defended him because I said, I get it. You want him to win national championships. You want him to beat Ohio State. Every Michigan fan on the planet does. But they also remember the Rich Rod days. They also remember the Brady Hoke days. And nine and a half wins ain't bad. And nine and a half wins certainly ain't bad when you're calling him the most overrated in the coach, or overrated coach in college football. Nine and a half wins a year ain't bad relative to a lot of programs. There are a lot of programs that would trade Jim Harbaugh's five-year run prior to last year with theirs. And I'm not talking about crappy programs. I'm talking about Texas, USC, UCLA, Miami, Florida State. I mean, I could go on and on, but the point I'm trying to make, Tennessee, there are a lot of programs that would kill for the success that Jim Harbaugh had. But what I would also say is not only can it be true that he's probably uh, hasn't lived up to the expectations, but he's delivered. But I will also say that it does feel like every time you start to believe in Harbaugh, something quirky happens. And that's why I was hesitant going into this Wisconsin game. Michigan's 4-0, but they struggle against Rutgers two weeks ago. They're going to find a way to lose to Wisconsin because every time I start to believe that Michigan may have turned a corner, they do something crazy. Instead, they actually looked really, really, really good. And so let's just talk a little bit about Saturday. I don't want to spend too much time breaking down this game because Wisconsin kind of stinks, but I do think this was an important win for a few reasons. First of all, if you want to discredit Michigan, you want to say Wisconsin stinks, that's fine. But what I would tell you and what stood out to me in this game is something kind of interesting and kind of simple. It is that we can argue Wisconsin stinks, but we know Wisconsin stinks because they played a really good schedule. They played Penn State at home to open the season, obviously Notre Dame at Soldier Field last week. So we can argue, you know, is Penn State the number four team, number three team, number eight team, whatever, Notre Dame the same. But they played two pretty good teams. And what I can definitively tell you is nobody, not Penn State, who we all have penciled in the playoff right now, nobody has physically kicked the crap out of Wisconsin the way that Michigan did on Saturday. If you watch, it was a bloodbath. I mean, it was awful. Like, you, you felt bad. Like, like, I have criticized Graham Mertz for a lot on this podcast, the Wisconsin quarterback. Graham Mertz could not do anything on Saturday because Michigan's defensive line, Wisconsin's offensive line, could not block them at all. Finished the game with six sacks, seven tackles for loss. Their defense was everywhere. It was swarming. It was one of the most impressive defensive efforts that I have seen all year in terms of just keeping a team off balance, having no idea where, where the pressure was going to come from, and Wisconsin just could not do anything. Maybe more impressive to me, though, was the offense, and the offense has always been the bigger question. It's always been the bigger concern, and it was my biggest concern going into this game. If you go back to Friday's episode, you can go back, listen to what I said, but what I said at the time was, 
I don't believe Michigan is going to win this game because this is the quintessential stubborn Harbaugh game, right? Like, like we all love Jim Harbaugh, and he loves beating the crap out of this team or that team. But when it comes to big games, he sticks to what he feels most confident in. That is the physicality. That is the run game. And that is exactly what Wisconsin thrives on. Wisconsin, best run defense in college football outside of Georgia. They might still statistically be the best run defense. I don't even know. But coming into the game, they had the best run defense in all of college football. And Michigan had a great run offense. And I said, Harbaugh's going to do what Harbaugh does. I can't pick Michigan because Harbaugh's just going to run the ball right at him and hope that he wears him out. And when he doesn't, they're going to lose the game 17-14 to like they always do. And instead, the opposite happened. I give Harbaugh credit. Harbaugh and his offensive coordinator, Josh Gaddis, they opened up the playbook. They were averaging like 15 passes per game coming into this game. They finished with 30, kept Wisconsin off balance, moved the ball downfield, and had success through the air. And so you look at how good the defense is, and now you look at the fact that Jim Harbaugh is finally not being stubborn and being willing to open up the offense in a big game when he needs to. And I'm just going to tell you, this team might be legitimate after all. First of all, in terms of the stubbornness is concerned, I give him credit, and it's something I've talked about on this podcast, but I think this was the first week that we really saw it, and I give credit to to Gus Johnson and Joel Klatt, who talked about it during the game, Jenny Taft too. What they talked about was, you know, coming out of last season, what I'll say about Jim Harbaugh is this. Jim Harbaugh, basically, from the time he picked up a whistle, left coaching to playing, left playing to be a head coach, he's had success everywhere he went. And I truly believe last offseason was the first time in his career that he had to look himself in the mirror and say, What I'm doing isn't working. What I'm doing is not good enough. And to his credit, he kind of revamped the entire coaching staff. They talked about it a lot during the game. They bring in Mike McDonald, a new defensive coordinator from the Baltimore Ravens, worked under Jim Harbaugh's brother, John Harbaugh, and they got much younger. And it appears as though he is leaning on that staff. The offense appears it's more Josh Gaddis's. They have some young coaches with Michigan ties. Mike Hart, Ron Bellamy played at Michigan kind of in my era, which means I'm getting old because they got coaches that are my age now. But Harbaugh revamped his staff, and it appears as though he's letting his coaches do what he's actually paying them to do. And so when I look at this team, when I look at what I saw on offense and defense, I'm telling you, this team might be legit. Now, what I would also say, they have a brutal, brutal, brutal schedule coming up. First of all, they go to Nebraska this week, and I'm just going to tell you, Nebraska has actually looked pretty good the last couple weeks. They destroyed Northwestern on Saturday night. Um... Adrian Martinez is finally starting to play well, so I give him a ton of credit because I've been very critical of him. Even if you get by Nebraska, you still got to play at Michigan State, which is a top 25 team. You still got to play at Penn State, and then you close the season with Ohio State. And so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I don't want to start crowning Jim Harbaugh this or Michigan that or they're back or they're going to make the playoff because the road ahead is still challenging. Um, you haven't beat Ohio State in the Jim Harbaugh era, but I do believe this is the best chance that they'll have. I know Ohio State looked really good against Rutgers, but I'm curious how much has really changed and how much of it was just that it was the right team on the right day for Ohio State. And what I'll tell you, you know, you're going to play Penn State. It's probably going to be at night. It's going to be a crazy, crazy, crazy atmosphere there. Uh, Michigan State's going to be a tough one, and even Nebraska's not easy. So I don't know what the ceiling of this team is for this season. It could be... 10-2, and and again, being on the outside looking in of of the Big Ten championship game in the college football playoff. I don't think it's inconceivable, though, that this team... Let me put put it... This is probably the best way to put it. 
I don't believe that there is any game left on the schedule that they cannot win, and I do believe this is also their best chance yet to beat Ohio State. And so all I'll say is shout out Jim Harbaugh because I am really, really, really excited about this team, at least right now, from what I've seen so far. All right, a couple quick topics I want to wrap up. First of all, uh, you know, not kind of on the field. I mentioned Ohio State liked what we saw from them. Uh, we'll see if, if, if you know how much they've bounced back. They've kind of hit kind of a sweet spot in the schedule where in a couple weeks they do have Penn State, but that is not for a while. So they got Maryland, they got Indiana before they get to uh, Penn State coming up here in three weeks. So they have some time to continue to get right leading into the Penn State game. Penn State also took care of Indiana as well, so very excited uh, to see them. Penn State plays at Iowa this weekend. So you talk about a mega, mega, mega game. That will certainly be one. Um, Texas A&M, I don't think there's anything to say. I told you they're not good. They're not good. That offense is struggling. They do not have a quarterback. Uh, I think it's a little unfair to do the Jim, Jimbo Fisher, you know, stinks rant because they were number five in the final college football playoff poll last week, but this team does not look very good, uh, and so Texas A&M continues to struggle. And finally, I've been avoiding it. I didn't want to talk about it. We got to talk a little Urban Meyer. Uh, <laughs> I'll just tell you a couple things. First of all, I recorded late Thursday uh, during the Bengals-Jaguars game. I thought the Bengals, I thought the Jaguars actually showed signs of progress. I thought maybe this Urban Meyer thing is finally starting to figure itself out. And then Saturday happened. And I'm sure you all saw it, but for those who didn't, it appears as though Urban Meyer, his Jacksonville Jaguars, played in Cincinnati. He coached at Ohio State. And it appears as though he stuck around Ohio to hang out and blow off some steam. And I don't know that I blame him. I don't know that I feel bad. He's 0-4. He lost four games in his first four years at Ohio State, so you can understand his frustration. But there's just one problem. Uh, some video popped up of him with a young lady who is definitely not his wife, probably half of his age, half of his wife's age. Um, I think the kids call it, she was grinding all up on him. And who knows what happened from there, not saying that any, you know, I, I don't, I'm not even going to say it, but uh, not saying anything, anything too inappropriate happened from there. But what was more interesting about it, and we wrote about it at, Aaron, at AaronTorresOnline.com, so I encourage you to check it out. There were other pictures posted by other people of Urban Meyer in the same outfit at the same bar. And so he can't pull the, it wasn't me, uh, I, I, it's from five years ago, my wife already, no, you can't pull that Urban Meyer. Um, and so I don't know what else, to, I, like, like I know you want me to come in hot and yell and scream and have some fun with it. First of all, I, I feel kind of bad for his wife. You know, she's at home trying to do whatever, her husband's losing his mind, and this video pops up, and by the way, for the record, we don't know if he did anything beyond have a little, you know, woman grind up on him, whatever. But it definitely was not a good look. Uh, he's definitely going to have, listen, whatever the media asks him on Monday, he's going to have a lot tougher questions to answer at home when he gets back to Jacksonville. Um, and we'll just see what this means for the, pr the future of Urban Meyer in Jacksonville. I will tell you, um, on Thursday night, we all watched the game, and he did not look like a guy that enjoys coaching in the NFL. One thing that I noticed, I do feel like at this point, it's he's almost going out of his way knowing that the camera is on him to uh, you know, show how exasperated he is. 
Every time there is not a touchdown play, he is basically bent over at the knees, running his hands through his hair. And he does not look as though, one, he's having very much fun, but now it just feels like he's laying it on for effect. Uh, I would also say I find it very interesting. He never seems to be talking into the headset. Um, you know, we criticize a lot of NFL and college coaches. I see Jim Harbaugh talking into his headset. I see Ed Orgeron talking into his headset. We criticize a lot of coaches, uh, but Jim, but but Urban Meyer never seems to be communicating with his coaches, communicating with his staff. And look, I will just tell you, I think this is another sign that this guy's not going to be around very long. Couple thoughts on that. One, there's the UC, USC thing, and I've said it from the beginning. I know everybody says there's no way he's going to leave after one year. There's no way he's going to leave less than one year in. But one, it's very clear that he does not want to be there. He is not having fun, and he knows that the NFL is not for him. Okay? Um, and I said it when the USC job opened. I said, look, I know it's easy to say there's no chance Urban Meyer is interested, but remember, they said there was no chance Nick Saban left the Miami Dolphins. He ends up leaving. He takes one week of criticism, and then he wins a bunch of national championships, and everybody realizes that that is the right fit for him, and that is where he should be, and now he's an icon. Not saying it's going to happen with Urban Meyer, but I could see that scenario. I could see that scenario where he just says, look, it ain't working out for me. This ain't for me. This ain't the right fit. I am going to just move on. I'm going to go to USC. I'm going to take bullets and arrows for a week, and then I'm going to get busy building another national championship contender. I could also see the scenario where a couple other things. One, he leaves for quote-unquote personal reasons to fix his relationship and just never comes back at least for a few more years to college football or football in general. And then three, I could also see the scenario where this is the moment where the locker room loses confidence in him. And, you know, there's been all sorts of reports about, you know, guys don't believe in him, guys this, guys that, whatever. What I would tell you is this, is that I, I believe most of it was nonsense. I believe most of it was just speculation and reports, and you know how the media is now. One person gets one story from one source, and they run it as if it's gospel. And I've always believed, you know, when you heard the things about, you know, the locker room was frustrated with him, it was one guy complaining to a reporter. But now that they've seen their coach out, and everybody's got to let loose, and everybody's got to blow off steam. But if you're a player in that locker room, and you flew back to Jacksonville, and you're getting ready, and you're getting your treatment, and you're banged up, and you're trying to get a W next Sunday, and you see your coach out having a good time, dancing with a girl that's about your age, that's half his age, I don't know if that's going to be something that he can overcome in the locker room. And so I'm just telling you, if, if I had to put an over-under at Urban Meyer coaching Urban Meyer coaching the Jacksonville Jaguars week one of the 2022 NFL season, I don't believe it's going to happen. Don't know if that means he goes to USC. Don't know if that means he gets out of coaching. Don't know if that means he finishes the season. I do not believe that he is a man, though, that has a very long future in the NFL. All right, I think it's officially time for your boy to get out of here. Long show, as I told you. Go make myself a beverage. But don't worry, don't worry. I'm not going to be like Urban Meyer. Nobody's going to be grinding up on me while I drink my beverage, all right? Before I get out of here, I want to remind everybody, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast iTunes, Spotify, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Amazon Radio, uh, Amazon Podcast, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Podcast. I should mention, by the way, thank you all to all of you who have shown me just a insane amount of support. Uh, we set a downloads record for September last month. So September, we were up from last year. 
YouTube has basically doubled, so make sure you're subscribed to YouTube if you're not already. Um, the college football betting podcast has gone up every single week, so I cannot thank you guys enough for your support. Also worth mentioning, as I told you, we started team-specific pages for teams specifically with my content. We have now Torres on the Hogs for UK. We have Tor- or Torres for the Hogs on Arkansas. Torres on UK launched this weekend for Kentucky coverage. Make sure you're following Torres on UK for Kentucky coverage. And also, on top of that, Torres on Bama for Bama coverage. All three of those accounts are run by fans of those teams. It's not just me tweeting out. You got news. You got information. You got videos. The Torres on on UK account launched this week after the Florida win. It was phenomenal what came out of that account this weekend. So thank you to our guy Sam who runs that account. But with that said, I got to get out of here. Make sure you're subscribed, rate, review. Leave a nice, leave, leave a nice review on, on, uh, on uh, Apple, by the way. But that's it. I'm going to get out of here. With that said, shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. You've heard enough of me. I'll be back on Wednesday, people. Thank you for listening to this Aaron Torres podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.